How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said, and I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Hello and welcome everyone once again to another episode of the Towards Data Science Podcast. My name is Jeremy and as always, I'm on the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. And one of the most interesting trends in machine learning has been the combination of different types of data that allow us to unlock new use cases, in particular for deep learning. If the 2010s were the decade of computer vision and voice recognition, then the 2020s may very well be the decade when we finally figure out how to make machines more context-aware and allow them to see and hear the world around them, making them potentially more human-like than ever before. Now, the push towards integrating all those diverse data sources has received a lot of attention from academics as well as from companies. And one of those companies is 20 Billion Neurons, and its founder, Roland Memesevic, is our guest for this latest episode of the podcast. Roland's a former academic who's been knee-deep in deep learning since well before the hype cycle that was sparked by AlexNet in 2012, and his company's been working on deep learning-powered developer tools, as well as an automated fitness coach that combines video and audio data to keep users engaged throughout their workout routines. Roland, we've got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about here. Thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. You're the CEO of 20 Billion Neurons, which is a company that specializes in applying deep learning to build a variety of tools. Some of them are developer-facing, some of them are consumer-facing apps, and we'll talk a lot about that uh, in the coming conversation here. But you actually started off on an academic path initially with a PhD in CS from the University of Toronto. So I'd like to actually start there if we could. Um, you started in 2003 which was way before AlexNet made deep learning mainstream. That was in 2012. So what got you into this space all that time ago? It was actually a little longer ago than that because I was uh, uh, an undergrad in Germany in a small city called Bielefeld. And um, I was interested in neural nets and these kind of things predominantly. Um, that, that interest was mostly fueled by uh, one of our professors there, Helge Ritter, who is still over there. Um, and was and then I was looking around 2003 or leading up to that, I was looking for a PhD position. And um, there were not many options there back then. Um, um, I was looking at the usual places, a uh, few in Europe. Uh, there was a little bit of activity around the Gatsby unit in, in, uh, in England. And um, I landed on Toronto uh, because Jeff Hinton was there already, uh, he just returned back to there, and uh, it's, it, it felt like this is the right thing to do. Um, it was very different back then than it's right now, because um, not only were there not many options, but the options that were there were also not as gigantic and, and uh, fueled with like immense amounts of funding and all of these things that are happening right now. It was a very small group. Uh, we were a handful of students and uh, we're dealing with neural networks. And 
the whole thing was still a little derided, I would say, in the community. It was oh yeah, your net, your network. So you would go to conferences like NeurIPS, um, uh, as it's called now, and uh, it would present your posters and stuff. And then once uh, a bunch of people realized that you're dealing with, uh, you know, like uh, oh, we're doing gradient descent. You're dealing with nonlinear optimization problems, like with local minima and stuff like that. And they see, oh, you're doing gradient descent. Uh huh. Okay, so you're not using a complex solver or something, and uh, oh, and you're just applying it like in a very simple vanilla way, like just simple gradient descent, no like whatever funky extra bells and whistles derived from from theory and stuff. Hmm. Okay, it was it was a bummer for many, and we we felt so strongly that this is right. Why is that, by the way? Because I'm I'm fascinated by that. Like, how, how did you how did you get a sense that neural networks had all this promise, especially back then when like support vector machines were kind of the hot game in town? You know, a lot of uh, a lot of the fodder there that fueled that that passion for it, and the, it was I mean that that belief that this is actually making sense here um, was pretty blunt. It was basically, you, you were playing around with data all the time anyway, right? So there was MNIST, obviously, there were like all kinds of other data sets. We made our own territory data sets and stuff. And we were just playing around a lot. And uh, um, it was just so evident that if you use vanilla gradient descent and, and do a little bit of backprop or something or, or other variants, some unsupervised learning things that we were exploring back then, um, and then compared that to some some other things, it felt like there's a disconnect. Like uh, there's a lot of interesting theory in in all the and on all of those kernel methods and, and convex uh, methods and so on that doesn't quite gel with the the actual needs that you face day to day. Like I was interested in this and text and like the typical deep learning material. I, I wasn't so interested in like I don't know. Uh, Bayesian analysis of small data sets or this kind of stuff. Like I wanted to make progress as a student back then, like a modest progress on things that involved images, for example, and videos and stuff. And it was by just playing with it day by day, so evident by looking at the data, by looking what these things, these versus those things can achieve um, honestly, intellectually honestly, you know, like they, they really figure something out. You get mutations in the hidden layers that really mean something. So there's really something happening as opposed to this is great, clean, Mathematical, lots of theory, but somehow it doesn't do really anything in the end. And it's always sort of like, like cheating, you know, like you felt like, okay, now you have this result with yeah. support 50 data points, but you kind of knew that it didn't mean much because uh, you knew it's only going to be sensible later when you scale to larger data sets and stuff. And mm -hmm. so just by playing day to day with this data and, and, and different optimization methods and trying this and that. Um, it just became clear, I think, to uh, to me and to to many other people that it's just the right thing. It's just you notice it's the right thing. It sounds like it's it has something to do with the universality of the approach, the sort of uh, robustness of it across different data types. No, I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say it's robustness across data types. It's actually maybe even the the opposite, rather. It's it's mm. um, great applicability to natural data, I don't know if I, I, I'm looking for a better term, but to stuff like images, uh, language, speech, mm. and these sort of things. 
as opposed to um, tabulate. time series, like financial data or tabular data, uh, statistical analysis, and these kind of things. So like what you would typically associate with AI, even though the term AI wasn't even used like in that, in that way back then, but like basically doing things that human do. It's like, like naturally processing natural stuff, which is pixels and, and voice samples and these kind of things. That's where back then already seemed to apply much better than anything else. So I wouldn't say broad. It's uh, broadly SVMs and, and Bayesian methods and stuff, uh, or, or broadly or for specific other problems, they're probably the better thing, especially if you have small data sets and stuff. But if you have a ton of data, there's a very, very weird nonlinearity that says this image shows a cat. Uh, very, very crisp, but um, but encoded in a very, very bizarre nonlinear way in the way that the pixels interact with each other and so on. That's where it seemed that uh, neural nets are the right thing to apply. And this something, um, I mean, particularly this tension between uh, crisp signal and a ton of data versus weak trends and little data. This tension, I think, quite well reflects the powers of these different types of method. And that's something that Jeff Hinton was always preaching back then uh, all the time. It's like uh, the brain has to deal with a different type of data than SVMs have to deal with. And just let them let neural nets loose on the things that they're good for. And um, and it's still until today, right? It's it materialized with ImageNet and these things, like the big bars in the community and stuff. And that is not analysis of, I don't know, application patterns on a job site or something like that. It's images and a lot of them. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because I haven't very often heard that kind of thought process articulated by somebody who is actually there in the trenches back in the day. Um, so that was clearly enough to motivate you then into the PhD research and all that stuff. Um, where thereafter, I mean, you pivoted into industry uh, post-PhD. You went from a very academic background to now like a very product-focused background. What was that transition like? What were some of the challenges? Oh, I was pivoting uh, back and forth, and I was like trying things and just having fun with these things and the methods and the data and stuff. Choices um, that I made were not so much along these dividing lines, but they were more alongside, um, is it in interesting? Is it intellectually somehow interesting and honest in some way? It's a weird term, but is it like, are you doing something that deep inside feels right about, uh, you know, how you apply the methods and, and whether you discover something or not or something like that. So that's always what's been driving me. It's, I mean, bluntly, you can say just having fun <laughs> with, uh, with the data. Um, and uh, so, that's what has been driving all of my decisions. I, and at some point, I went to, back to Europe for some time and, uh, and then uh, eventually landed in Montreal. Um, and uh, from there on, moved back to industry, you know, in a different role, which is the current company. And, and what, what made you decide to start that company? And actually, maybe, maybe this is a good segue into what that company is as well, if you can just unpack what 20 billion neurons does. Yeah. Um, what led me into uh, taking this on was... Um, the insight pretty much instigated by um, by everything around ImageNet. It actually started a little earlier, also with speech and stuff. That backdrop really works and better than than people thought, and um, that it does make sense to fight hard to get your hands on a lot of labeled data 
and um, my interest was in vision mostly uh, already at the university um, and um, vision in a in a sense of you know understanding stuff in images in a more human-like way uh, like reasoning with some kind of common sense about what's going on in, in images and videos and um, I realized back then that there was an opportunity to team up um, with some friends I had from way back then in Germany um, and uh, we realized that there's an opportunity here that we can bring together some of the the deep learning skills that I brought to the table with their engineering skills to orchestrate web operations for data sourcing, that we could build something amazing. And uh, what we ended up building um, based on that was a data platform where we generate video data that trains neural nets to recognize with a certain amount of common sense, quote unquote, uh, what's going on in a scene. Um, you can call it situated vision in, in academic terms. It's basically understanding a situation, um, enabling a robot or a camera for that matter that is sitting somewhere here to understand, to grasp the essence of the scene and to enable an interaction with you that allows that robot or that camera in some sense to really be here with you. Um, grounded in this particular scene and uh, talk to you about stuff and understand your surroundings and and um, provide value that way. And so what this crowd acting platform that we ended up building does is it generates labeled data to that end. Um, and um, it's in a sense, it turns upside down the the typical data sourcing process in, in many uh, situations that you have. So we did not want to source data and then apply crowd labeling to it so that we assign those labels but we really wanted to get at these subtle aspects like uh, for example in our context right now um, is the person looking at me um, is, is the person looking to me at me and saying things to me or is uh, the person distracted right now and uh, right. talk hey hey you over there. I'm gonna come in a second I'm gonna call here right now uh, these kind of things like basically understanding subtleties in an interaction um, and so we couldn't possibly find that kind of data uh, in the internet and then label it, but um, we turned it upside down and we're asking crowd workers to use their cameras and microphones um, to act out concepts that we, those can be things like the ones I just said and many, many others, like dropping an object on the floor, handing something over and like doing all kinds of stuff um, with objects, with, with your mouse, uh, um, with, with your body and, and all of these things. And so um, we amassed a database of a few million videos with um, highly complicated labels that are acted out by the crowd actors that then allowed us to train a recurrent net and, and uh, various types of network that we were toying with um, to um, basically parse the scene and then trigger reactions um, uh, accordingly. So it's basically a human computer interaction. You can call it Alexa 2.0 or something like that, which was um, before even Alexa and Google Home and these kind of devices were really a thing. Yeah. Um, leading to us to a, to a, um, place where you have engagements with an AI system that's not just a speaker with a microphone where you can go, hey, how's the weather tomorrow? But that is a real situated uh, coach of 
assistant in your home that can interact with you and see what you're doing, um, see that you're approaching it and have a more natural um, way of conversing with you. So this sounds like a challenge that goes way beyond the, the classic uh, image captioning problem, which is obviously something that's been well studied. So you're looking not only at video, but also these sort of subtle context-aware situational things. Are you still constrained in this picture to to having the machine make predictions based on stuff it's seen before? Is there a generalize, like an ability to generalize beyond like, I've seen this exact label before, or is it still sort of more or less in that paradigm? One paradigm in which it is, is it's still fairly simple, supervised learning, pixels in, labels out. Right. Um, with a slight difference, I mean, uh, if there's temporal, happens in, through time, yeah. then past stuff is going to affect that. But that change doesn't really change the paradigm. It's still pixels and voice samples stream in, and uh, some stuff streams out. And so that stuff is basically triggers or, or uh, voice uh, um, utterances that um, the system gives back or um, renderings on a screen. So the way that the smart speaker paradigm is um, twisted here. And, and what we're doing is instead of speaker in, um, uh, uh, sorry, voice in, voice out, it's voice in, voice out, and vision in, vision out. So that we need a camera and a microphone and a speaker um, to have this fluent real, real world visual interaction with the, um, with the AI assistant. And um, so yeah, to go back to your question, it is uh, it is pretty simple. There is uh, pixels in, voice samples in, uh, yeah, uh, audio samples in, and um, stuff going out um, through time, um, and it's trained end to end with backprop on a ton of data that makes sure that it's going to generalize reasonably well to similar situations, similar activities, similar gestures, uh, or what you want to generalize I really find that that fascinating the idea of multiple different data sources and getting them to collaborate together essentially I guess do, constructing the latent vectors the dimensionality reduce the computer vision input and the uh, the audio input to like essentially the same latent space and in a way not to get too meta about this but it, it makes me think of um, uh, I don't know if you this is maybe too far off base here but I don't know if you've ever done mindfulness meditation or, or heard of it. And, and one, of the, one common theme is, you know, you close your eyes and you become aware that essentially all the inputs that your brain is processing really genuinely do exist on the same plane of awareness. And it's like that latent representation that you're trying to get in touch with in, in a weird way. Um, anyway, not to go too off base in an esoteric direction here, but... I think in that vein, um, it is... I mean, something that philosophers and neuroscientists and so on have been talking about for many, many, many decades, right? Uh, the fact that it's, in the end, it's just bits uh, traveling along some channel, regardless yeah. of whether it's visual or other kinds of information. Um, there's an interesting, pretty deep aspect to this, though, which also probably ties into, I don't know, experiences with meditation and so on, uh, which is language, right? So uh, sometimes people call this the the monkey in the brain or something. Um, you have this constant voice in your head that that narrates the kind of experience that you're having right now. And um, that monkey probably gets trained partly by having conversations, real conversations with, with 
people in the outside world. Um, but it somehow has its life on its own, where it's just she keeps talking about the fact that right now I'm approaching the door and now I'm gonna grab the doorknob to twist it because my plan is to get over there in that other room and these kind of things. Uh, and uh, lots of people believe that there's a, a, not just an accidental, but a pretty fundamental need for this kind of narrative um, to structure what's going on in a messy recurrent network right. um, to not load and uh, and and stay stable through all kinds of you know trajectories that it has to go through and so off, so on in, in robotic stars and such. This is very um, long term, very speculative kind of stuff um, that um, that we'll probably see in the future more. But I think the starting point for any of this kind of work can only be a, um, a interaction or a device or some kind of value proposition where you do merge those channels right in the beginning and you do have to deal with language and with vision or other input channels at the same time and you do have to deal with the fact that they're both there and they have to be somehow dealt with uh, inside the system appropriately and, uh, and, and then magic can happen and I wouldn't argue that we have real like uh, a real deep level of this kind of magic happening yet in the system. A lot of is is still uh, state machines and things that have to somehow play nicely together and so on. But um, but we do see some interesting things that I think people just wouldn't possibly be able to see uh, without doing this commitment to uh, multimodal right from the beginning. I think this brings us to our. Uh potentially new mutual friend, Millie. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about Millie and, and that project, what it involves? Yeah, so um, Millie was our first shot at a uh, situated robot on a screen, if you like, um, that allows us to uh, bring across this um, uh, situated real world uh, useful conversation without having to deal with actuators and all kinds of robotic issues that uh, robotics organizations have to deal with. Um, it's an avatar that is situated on a screen. So it's if it's quite quite literally a, a robot uh, that is orchestrated with like game uh, game engine stuff and um, whose perception is coming from the neural net that processes the visual and the auditory information. And um, and that's what it does. Um, when we were developing this first um, uh, a virtual being type thing a couple of years ago, we were um, in a in a hardware environment where you couldn't run these kind of things um, easily on anything smaller than a big big GPU, and um, we ended up creating the first instances of this by uh, building kiosks, actually, um, that have a GPU built in and a camera and a microphone and so on. And uh, where the avatar, Millie, that first one, um, was able to uh, stand at the entrance of a, of a conference room or things like that and talk to people who would approach her and uh, tell them uh, we're finding direction where to find certain things um, or uh, thoughts on, on the program and, and these kind of things. Um, that whole threat um, was basically uh, linked to a bet that we made, which was um, at some point the consumer hardware landscape is going to be at a place where people will just own these kind of devices. 
on a, on a very large scale so that we can provide that value um, on commodity devices. It just wasn't there at that point. And so we went the detour via building our own hardware in some sense. Um, in 2018, late 2018, the moment came where this bet, this particular card that we were betting, out, betting on played out in some sense, um, which is when Apple released the latest generation of iPhones and iPads that turned out to have a chip in there um, that has an accelerator on board that turns out can run the workloads that are required to do all of the processing of the neural net um, uh, vision part and, and of the neural net speech part. And at that point, we decided to um, port the whole stack over to that device. Um, it was foreseeable that not only that, but any future generations of these Apple devices are going to have the same capabilities. And um, we um, created variants of this avatar. One of them is called uh, Ali, who is your fitness ally, um, which is um, walking you through workouts and um, coaches you at home to get fit. And um, incidentally, that particular avatar um, that is a fitness coach is pretty much launching at the very moment um, as a as a consumer offering in the app store it's going to be in the app store um, in in a couple of days and it's currently on test flight and i'm happy to send over a link yes actually we'll share that for sure I, i'm looking forward to trying it actually one question i do have on that note too because you know when you're talking about really this this cutting edge um, application of deep learning and potentially things like reinforcement learning eventually as well. One of the things that keeps coming up in my mind is this comparison to uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, where people are really being forced to come up with new design patterns, new user experience patterns. With augmented reality, people don't know how to use it yet. It's like this, this brave new world. It's the Wild West. And just like here, I mean, you're really doing some pioneering work on you know, human-machine interactions, getting people to to work with these machines in a way that feels intuitive, is is that a challenge that you've had to deal with? Have you noticed some like some difficulties getting users accustomed to things, and maybe has that impacted the the product? It is a huge challenge. Yes, mm. it's it's a massive challenge. Um, it's a shift in consumer behavior that is required to um, to have anybody adopt this in the first place, and. Um, for us, though, we were so convinced that this shift in consumer behavior is a reasonable bet to take that we just took it and uh, and bullied it through, if you want. Um, we were pretty happy to see the the growth on uh, on these kind of things like Alexa, Google Home, and so on. Um, this is actually happening, right? Which gave us further confidence that we're not full of shit, but we're actually. Uh, onto something, and it's worth continuing this. And that has been a decision between us and the investors, and so on. We're, we're probably on the right track here, um, and so we just have to keep fighting uh, in the same direction to make this happen. But it is a major, major challenge. Um, one way in which we address this particularly is that um, use cases that we could have approached on the consumer end, um, on the, the the app on, on iOS devices, uh, we went for fitness coaching um, because we saw that the value that we can bring to the table is just really, really, really strong. And it's just going to be really, really useful to have a fitness coach 
that can give you credit because it can see how you're doing your workout. Um, that can give you feedback, live feedback, and be sort of there with you as you sweat and, and do the exercises because it can see subtleties in the way in which you do or do not move properly. And it can be highly personal because it, uh, it, it remembers how you did yesterday or last week. We had a journey with you and accompany you on your journey in the longer term, rather than being a device without eyes uh, in your living room where you go, hey, can you play this song? And then you play a song and that's it. So it's a much, much richer and, and, uh, and better interaction. But it's ultimately um, that we bet on this because we felt like it's useful. It's going to be useful. And, um, and that gave us a lot of confidence that it's worth making this this bet on this shift in consumer behavior. We were then very pleased, I should add, to see, as we were going along in this direction, that there was another shift in consumer behavior, uh, basically pushing the exact same button or go shooting in the same direction, which was uh, uh, connected bikes and Peloton and, and all these new ways of doing fitness at home that was right in the in the same vein and um and people were getting more and more used to just doing this kind of stuff and being i don't know not coached maybe at that point but being uh assisted by some kind of technology at home rather than going to the gym or something and um and so it's massive and uh, we're still hopeful that despite all that, um, we have something that's useful and, and sort of coming in the exact right time that, that it's going to work out. Yeah, timing is always really important here, of course. And one, one thing I do want to touch on as well is a little bit more on the technical side to the extent that you can talk about it. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a question about the actual neural networks, the engineering behind this. How is it that you meld together the audio and video inputs in a way that, that leads to a latent representation that's actually intrinsically useful? Uh, it's very, very simple. It's, it's, it's disappointing for this kind of system from the, from the philosophical discussion that we had before, right? Um, the, that philosophical discussion is, as I said, it's something that will depend on a system that can interact with you visually and auditive at the same time and so on. Um, currently, it's very, very simple. It's not really uh, that there's a neural net that really melts together those representations or anything like that. It's pretty separate. Uh, it's obviously, it's like pieces of neural net running on, on the same device and so on. And there is um, some dependency of uh, what you say on what you've done or just done or not done well and all of these things. So it's, it's a principle there, but it's not pretty in the sense that there's one gigantic black box a neural net all it does it learns to uh, the right things at the right time um, and then you just go train it and uh, and everything magically happens so that that very neural net will have a monkey in its head like you uh, that guides it through its uh, you know uh, life and these kind of things we're not there yeah so this um, from a technical point of view uh, probably rather disappointing oh i guess i was i was more sort of wondering i mean I, yeah of course we're not an agi yet um and and when we are we might not realize it but one of the the things i was wondering about was like you know you see sometimes and i think i've seen neural network architectures like this where you know you might use like a resnet and then you know 
have that in, instead of doing using it for classification or something, the final layer is some latent representation. You do something similar with an audio input, and then you fuse the two together, and then you have some mapping from that kind of fused yeah. representation yeah. to something else. Is that yeah, roughly? I mean, these things. I mean, there's a lot of this stuff, and it makes perfect sense. Um, we had early experiments, even quite earlier, where we had a data set where um, the video was labeled not with labels um, that are kind of homogeneous concepts, like putting something on the table, but uh, captions really, where you say putting a cup on the laptop that is in front of me or whatever. Um, and um, we had beautiful experiments where we um, saw that. You uh, you get better representations for subsequent transfer learning on other completely different kinds of tasks, or maybe not completely different or related kinds of tasks. You get better, much better performance when you pre-train that system on actual captions, where it really has to generate language in some sense about uh, describing what's going on in the scene, rather than training it on one-off type labels that just capture kind of the cause structure of what's going on or something. So, I mean, this is, it's not that, it's not black and white, right? I mean, we see lots of opportunities and places where this merging of these kind of sources of information plays a role. Um, it's just not that it's right now amalgamated or something like that into yeah. this one huge, massive neural net that, that <laughs> yeah. gets uh, becomes alive or something like that. I think we're very, very, very far away from that. Now, there, there's, I assume, a, a separate challenge involved in just getting all this stuff on on device, right? Because one whole there's a whole area of research, obviously, in terms of compressing neural networks down to the point where they can actually fit on a device. Um, can you walk us through the decision-making process at your end? Did you decide to go in that direction, or did you decide to do something else? And, and if so, why? Um, yeah, I was referring to this as a bet uh, a little while ago, right? Um, we were hoping or uh, willing to bet um, that the the consumer landscape will evolve fast enough that the device like the hardware consumer hardware landscape that it just doesn't make sense for us to um, spend a lot of time and resources on squeezing your networks down to make them work on very specific maybe weird or, or um, not very common uh, target architectures uh, that would then serve a particular uh, business need or something like that. Um, we realized that there's a lot of time that we could waste by going down that route and that there's a lot of value in just sitting back, building our kiosks for starters, you know, so we have our hardware and we have our proof points and so on and letting the world catch up. And um, it turned out that this was a good bet, um, actually even a little earlier than we were hoping when, when the Apple incident happened and, uh, and the first generation of consumer devices suddenly came on the map that proved that point um, and what happened in hindsight is, or after that is uh, now there's android phones that can deliver the same thing and uh, all kinds of devices like smart tvs connected bikes uh, mirrors smart mirrors and all of these things are equipped more and more with hardware that can power this this kind of stuff it's still quite early on some of those that had in that hardware space, but it's sort of catching up. And it's in a foreseeable future that it's just normal that you have an accelerator um, similar to the, the one in the, in the iOS devices right now that just does it. And um, so from a strategic point of view, the business strategy for us was to, to just not um, get dragged into that rabbit hole of squeezing and bes particularly bespoke squeezing, um, but rather um, like just pushing it through and making a bolder bet 
um, and and uh, I'm happy that we did it after all. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where. Well, I really like that as an example as well for people who are listening. Yeah, as data scientists or aspiring data scientists, you know, if you're thinking about where should I be investing my time in project building, in improving out my value to businesses, like this business part of, of the decision process, this decision that, look, I've got a finite amount of resources that I can throw at this thing. Um, maybe I do wait for this problem to solve itself. Maybe I don't bother kind of optimizing the world around this constraint. Um, this is the kind of of thinking that I think is really important. It's great to hear it from somebody who's who's doing it at this level too. It's interesting that you're experiencing yeah, it there. It is important. It also has to be uh, um, done with a lot of responsibility, or I don't know if that's the right term, but it, it has to be done carefully because um, you can easily uh, excuse yourself from things that uh, you don't want to do by just saying, oh, well, you know, <laughs> Let's let the world catch up somehow. I'm just not yeah. going to learn how to use this kind of tool or whatever. Uh, um, maybe things are going to be better in a few years. I'm just going to do something else. Um, so it's a it's a really nonlinear and complex decision making process, right? It's a complicated world, and uh, I think if one is really served well, um, uh, weird term, but intellect with some intellectual honesty, just looking at all of that that space and uh, thinking really, really. Uh, honestly about what the world looks like how the landscape looks like what the ecosystem looks like what the tools are and stuff and and then deciding what's the right timing to do certain things or holding off on certain things um in this in an informed way somehow it's a it's a beautiful um exercise to do anyway you know it's um it's it's quite a a rich um decision-making process it has to take into account a lot of different sources of information and uh, and it's also a prediction game which makes it fun um, absolutely well and, and thank you for sharing your end of that calculation as well with us today I think this is a really interesting conversation do you have any uh, any closing advice maybe for anybody who's looking to explore this kind of area especially on the deep learning sort of multi source of information thing what kind of project for example could somebody Think about building to dive into this space with maybe publicly available data or can you think of anything in that vein um there's a whole bunch of data sets around um, one of them is the one that i mentioned uh that we were making these early captioning experiments on that's called something something um that you can just download you can just google it and, and find it and, and oh it's called it. something something it's called something something because okay. the labels were actually not just free captions but they were uh, they were uh, captions that were structured into sentences of the form, um, say, putting something onto something. And then what we would get from the crowd workers is both the video where a crowd worker puts something onto something, and we could use that as a label. Uh, but we also ask them to provide uh, more fine-grained information and tell us what the some things are. And so they may be saying something like putting a yellowish mark on my laptop. Um, your listeners can see that right now. You can see it since we're on a video call. Um, but uh, these kind of things. And um, that's what allowed us to make these experiments along transfer learning, but we could look at how well, how much better does it work to pre-train a network on finer grained descriptions rather than like the causal labels and these kind of things. Um, so there are data sets. Um, I, there's a whole uh, trend, I would say, underway in the direction of um, merging audio vision, grounding, um, and these kind of things, um, and there's workshops and so on, and um, there's certainly 
fun tasks and data sets out there um, for, for anybody who wants to play around with these kind of kind of things. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the recommendation. I think that'll be really useful. Uh, do you have, by the way, social media links you want to plug just in case people want to follow and, and learn more about what you're up to? Um, I think the most imminent, um, the the most uh, uh, fun thing to look at, at right now is at the website around our newest offering, which is at Consumer Fitness Coach. And that's called allyfitness.com, A-L-L-Y-F-I-T-N-E-S-S.com. And um, that site will contain the latest information on what's going on with this app. And um, if anybody wants to play around with that or something, this is the place to find. Awesome. Well, uh, everyone, get your, get your sweat on and uh, check that out. Thanks so much, Roland. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Likewise. It was a pleasure.